Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the challenges facing investors and the benefits of having investment professionals by your side. With Phil Attreed, Head of Wealth Specialists, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, Ian Aylwood, Head of Manager Selection and Responsible Investing, and Luke Pierce, Senior Investment Strategist. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Word on the Street, where along with the usual roundup of market events, we're going to be looking to discuss the merits of utilising investment professionals. And I'm joined uh, to discuss this by our regulars to this podcast, Luke, Rob and Ian. So Luke, firstly, in addition obviously to the ongoing developments that we're seeing in Ukraine, in the last week uh, we've also had the French first round results of, of their election um, and as we record this today we've got inflation data released for the UK and for the US as well. So if you could just maybe start us off with what, what's been happening and what does this mean for our investment view? Yeah hi Phil, um, I think let's start with the French elections. So Macron won the first round by a higher than expected margin and so the odds of him taking the second round and therefore winning have increased so you can see this directly in betting markets, which now have him as roughly the 85 to 90% favourite, but also in response from certain financial assets which are sensitive to the outcome. So namely the euro made small gains versus the US dollar following um, Macron's victory on Sunday. We also saw that French bonds outperformed uh, as well as uh, certain more uh, domestically focused French stocks. Um, although he is the large favourite, it's by no means a done deal. And um, there still does remain a question on where votes from the losing candidates from the first round will go um, or if people might abstain. And then from an investment perspective, I think as with most political events, this is not something that we would be looking to adjust portfolios for, uh, but we'll be watching with interest. Um, the second round, I think, is on the 24th of April, so that will be the next date to keep in your calendars. And as you said, we also had the latest inflation readings for the US and UK. So in the US, inflation still remains very elevated and came in marginally above expectations, uh, with an increase in energy prices contributing quite a lot to March's reading, uh, which have obviously surged since Russia invaded Ukraine. But if you look to other categories of inflation, um, so things like used cars, um, they were previously contributing quite heavily to inflation, but are now actually coming down. And this is giving some people some very tentative confidence that, uh, at least in the US anyway, we are getting closer and closer to the peak in inflation. Uh, but of course, it does still remain highly uncertain. Here in the UK, I don't think we are unfortunately probably quite as close to the peak in inflation. So the latest reading here came in at 7% year over year. Uh, again, fuel costs rose considerably here and, and amounted for quite a, a large portion of that inflation. And this data won't really do a lot to alleviate any concerns around the cost of living, uh, which, of course, was already in the spotlight as disposable incomes are being squeezed, uh, simply because wages are not keeping up with inflation at the moment. And that dynamic is actually even more prominent uh, for lower income households who tend to spend 
a much larger share of that income on things like energy and food. So in truth, I do think it's a bit bit of a complicated, bit of a murky outlook for the UK economy at the moment. What I would say is that that murky and complicated outlook doesn't always translate into a murky and complicated investment outlook, um, especially if you are a globally diversified uh, investor, which hopefully listeners will know we are big advocates of. Um, the UK economy does, doesn't tend to be a large influence in the global economy. And even the UK stock market generates the majority of its profits uh, from abroad. So it's just worth bearing that in mind when we are talking about the, what's going on here in the UK. Great. Thanks, Luke. Um, and so, I mean, turning to the rest of the agenda, um, you know, we hope that many listeners are already clients and may well be benefiting from the support of our investment expertise already. Um, but we did want to get into a bit of a discussion as to why we think it's important to get that support from investment professionals and what value they deliver in that sort of overall process. So, Rob, you know, experience tells me that investing successfully you know, it can be difficult at the best of times. You talk a lot on this podcast and on the sister podcast about um, you know, the pitfalls that individual investors face. So what are the key challenges? Hi, Phil. Yes. So, I mean, investing is, is not just sort of mentally difficult from a, from a point of view of, you know, selecting the right investments, but it's also a very kind of emotionally challenging uh, pursuit, if you like. So we're, we're easily influenced uh, when we are choosing the sort of investments that we we buy and sell, and not necessarily always buy factors that that should be influencing our our choice of what to invest in, um, and this can often lead us to more what we call concentrated portfolios, so portfolios that maybe have uh, a specific focus in, and it could, you know it can be an individual company, it can be an individual sector, it can be an individual sort of geography, which sort of negates, as as Luke was saying earlier, the the benefits of diversification that we talk a lot about. And so one, I guess, example of this is something that we call home bias. So this is where we see investors, individual investors tend to hold a much, much more significant proportion of, of their assets in investments of their home market. So for UK investors, that tends to be, you know, the FTSE 100 or, or, or you know, some, some part of the FTSE market. Um, and what that means is that, you know, we're obviously limiting the opportunity set we're exposed to. And, and also it can mean that we're exposed to certain sectors in particular because the makeup of uh, different geographies, investment markets um, are, are very different to each other. Now, there's many reasons for this, but you know, familiarity is, is one of the key ones that, that comes across. You know, we know the names, we know the market, we feel much more comfortable investing in those sorts of areas. Um, but, but apart from just you know, choosing the best investments, the right investments and, you know, suitable investments that, that is a challenge, you know, you also need to think about when to invest and, and when sort of uh, to, um, or how, how, I guess, how to get invested. And this is something that tends to be very, very difficult, especially during, you know, periods like we've been going through in the first half of 2022, where markets are, are very volatile, you know, very turbulent, and therefore, you know, the temptation is to, to look at the short term performance and be driven, you know, really by that rather than, you know, the longer term track record that we always talk about that people, people investors should think about because that's the reality of the outcomes they're trying to achieve are in the much longer term rather than, you know, in, in one month or one weeks of, of performance. 
but it's easy for that you know that short-term performance to seep into our perceptions and how we view risk and uh, of, of the different assets and therefore make us feel like we don't want to be invested because suddenly what we're invested in is is far more riskier than we than we thought it was and actually the prospects for it are far worse over over the over the long term which isn't necessarily always the case so it often drives us into although we don't explicitly sort of mean to into sort of timing the market because we'll sit there and we'll think actually is is now the best time to get invested and and we sort of tend quite often make wholesale decisions around whether to be fully invested or, or not invested at all or whether to come out of the market you know during these sorts of periods and make quite significant changes to our to our portfolios um sort of based on this sort of assessment okay and i mean what do some of these sort of influencing factors that you've mentioned what do they mean for the performance that investors experience so that's a really good question so i mean in theory you think about all these things and the fact that what they really do is they mean that it's as an investor it's much easier to to sort of buy near the top of the market where things are positive and news is all very very good and short-term performance is good but it also makes it very easy to to sell at the bottom of the market when you know when obviously news flow is very bad and prices have been falling and obviously if you do that repetitively then that's not not a good a good place to be and actually you know the mantra of good investing is you know is, is buying low and selling high the exact opposite so what we see and actually we were sort of did some work uh with some with some researchers many years back um and we're sort of one of the first to really start looking at what is the effect of you know decisions that investors make in terms of market timing um and how does that affect their their overall returns and actually from some of the study we did we saw that when you compare essentially the same the same investments that an investor is is putting their money into but you look at sort of when they've when they've invested um when they've sold when they've um uh, bought and essentially the effects of of them timing the market versus just if they had just held that investment over the period you see that that the gap in that performance is is one and a half well sorry 1.2 percent per annum now that might not sound like a lot but i guess there's two things to say about it. one is 1.2% when it's compounded over you know many years is could you know compound up to a big effect so just over 18 years it's you know it's basically around 20% in terms of the the difference and the other thing is that what we're talking about here is you know not the difference between someone being not invested and sat in a cash account versus being invested this is the difference between the same investment product but just the effect of someone sort of trying to get out of the market when they think times are bad and get back in when times are good so this is really purely an effect of of behavior really great and i suppose that's really where you know as we're alluding to today this is where investment professionals can help you know, by making some of those decisions both in terms of what types of assets to invest in um, you know how much of each type of asset over the long term, but also when to make tweaks to those investments over the shorter term, and of course our own discretionary portfolios uh, and our ready-made investment funds as well within Barclays, you know they all benefit from our asset allocation process. Obviously, we've got Luke on the call with us um, today. Um, asset allocation, as I say, obviously we have that long-term strategic asset allocation and then shorter-term shorter tactical decision making uh, that the team undertake. Maybe, Luke, if you can just share how some of these might benefit customers. Yeah, absolutely. I think ultimately it boils down to having just a really strong 
investment process. Um, you know, when it comes to just investing more, more generally, we can't control the outcome. And so if you can't control the outcome, your focus really should be on improving the quality of your decision making or, or your process. So there will be times in the short term, as, as Rob has alluded to, where you'll get unlucky or you might underperform. But over, over time, we do believe a good process is likely to have a, a good outcome. And so an awful lot of thought and design goes into our asset allocation decisions. So for our strategic asset allocation, uh, which is the mix of stocks, bonds, commodities and, and other assets that investors should hold for the long term, there are several inputs and considerations that we make. So what assets do we actually include in our universe? What's our best forecast for long term returns for each asset? How do the assets interact with, you, with each other and how can we best achieve diversification within the portfolio? How might assets perform under different multiple future paths ahead, not just kind of assuming what's occurred in the last 10 or 20 years will just repeat itself? How do we then map portfolio risk to client risk tolerance, which Rob's team are obviously hugely influential here. And I could go on and on, but I think you kind of get the point. Um, it's very, very difficult, I think, for people to think about all of this stuff unless it's really a full-time job and you're surrounded by a team of incredibly smart people, which I, I fortunately am. For a tactical asset allocation, uh, which is where we make small tilts to portfolios based on our shorter term outlook, again, there is similarly a whole robust process behind this. So we have a scorecard framework which considers various different factors which we all believe are important. So things like the outlook for growth and inflation, what are central bank and government policies doing, uh, where is investor sentiment, amongst a host of other things. And we actually create a lot of our own indicators and models that are really based on historical evidence. And that helps support our decision making here, too. Um, we don't ever believe uh, that tactical asset allocation should ever dominate portfolio returns. Um, just by design, that, that sort of activity should be relatively low confidence and low conviction. And that's why it's only ever around the edges of the portfolio. But having a strong process here has allowed us to consistently add to performance uh, over time. And again, I think this is very, very difficult to do or, or replicate without the time, expertise and a team of uh, really smart people. Quite not as simple as uh, some may believe, but you know, asset allocation is one thing. But when it comes to, I suppose, choosing the individual investments to then build out a portfolio, uh, this can equally be far more difficult than many believe. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, no, exactly. And um, just you know to bring some some i guess some some numbers to that you know i talked before about some some research that we've done there is a report um called the quantitative analysis of investor behavior which sounds uh, very nice doesn't it but that's that's produced annually by a company in, in america called Dalbar. and what they really look at is well one of the things they look at is what is the difference between sort of the average investor who's sort of choosing um um, equity funds so stocks and shares uh, funds and that of a passive index so they look at the S&P 500 because it's the US index and they're looking at US um, uh, equity funds and what they see is that consistently year on year individual investors underperform tend to underperform on average the S&P 500 just the sort of passive um, index and actually if we look at the most recent report they've released which is for half one um, 2021, they see that they've underperformed by by two percent, which again, you know, may not sound like a huge amount, um, but once compounded, it you know can be significant in terms of over the longer term. Um, but also, again, you know, we're looking at people who are already sort of invested and and have chosen you know investments in funds where there is 
already you know a level of um, investment uh, professional expertise in terms of putting those funds together and those already diversified if we were to think about l opening that up to investors who were just sort of choosing their own um, assets and, and maybe directly choosing stocks and shares themselves there's no argument that that, that gap would get potentially get wider in terms of how much they underperform the s p 500 and actually we see that in our own you know our own platform where people come and buy and, and sell is that people who buy and sell stocks and shares in the majority of of what they do tend to underperform those that buy funds and so you yeah like i said you can imagine that two percent getting getting even greater if you were to look at you know all investors quite i mean it's something we've discussed again on the sister podcast money plan you know that that the the, the impact of compounding over time you don't need too big a difference um, or, un or too big or underperformance for that to be a meaningful gap um, the further out you go um, through life and, and, and through that time um, that, that investors remain invested um, as you say it's tough enough to pick active managers this is a great time I think to bring Ian into the conversation this is your domain your team's domain uh, within the business uh, looking to try and beat the passive alternatives that are available um, to investors now of course um, in you know within our own business we refer to the framework that you and the team have around selecting managers as the five P's you've touched this uh, you've touched on this briefly in past word on the streets but maybe if you'd like to go into a bit more detail today that would be great yeah hi Phil thank you yeah, it's good to, to get the opportunity to go into a bit more depth and, and directly talk about these five P's today so Maybe first, though, I'll just say a few words on, on the team and the people that implement that. So um, we number 10. We're all based in our HQ in, in London, a spectacularly tall tower um, in Canary Wharf. The, the average tenure in the team is over 10 years. Um, we've got multiple investment qualifications be between the team, between us, such as the CFA, the Kaya, more recently the CFA certificate in ESG investing as well. Um, in fact, a number of the team are recently featured in, in CityWire's top 100 fund selectors in the UK, whilst I myself was actually voted um, the most influential um, fund selector in the UK by my peers. So I like to think that with these resources, um, plus the scale and the credibility of Barclays behind us, you know, we, we, we more than qualify as, uh, as experienced and appropriately skilled investment professionals. So you know, what on earth... Uh, moving on are you know the five P's. Well, actually, it's named because there are five key areas, each starting with the letter P, that we think are, are, are important to assess when looking at managers. So those let those um, five areas are parent, people, philosophy, process, and performance. You know they're all they're all equally weighted, but we believe that um, a high score in each of those areas is indicative as we assess the potential for managers of, of, of a higher likelihood of future um, outperformance. So maybe taking each of those very briefly in turn, parent you know, refers to the fund group, you know, the, the, the firm that is running uh, the fund. Um, these can be listed, unlisted, large, small boutiques. You know, we really um, you know, are agnostic, but we will certainly look at the financial statements of these businesses, um, meet with the individuals. It wouldn't be uncommon to meet um, the CIO or even the CEO of, of these of these fund groups and ultimately make sure we are comfortable uh, partnering with those entities. 
people, uh, of course, is all about the investment talent. Um, you know, we will we will meet with the fund managers and their teams frequently. Might actually you know sit in on their on their in person meetings. We'll do site visits. Um, we tend to prefer managers who have above average experience, who are supported by a team of seasoned um, analysts. We like to see them you know, being open with us when discussing their, their track records and their views. Um, and, and we actually you know, expect them to show uh, humility. You know, as, a, as, a, as an investor, you make mistakes um, you know, a lot of the time, minority of the time, but a lot of the time. And we um, expect managers to, to learn from those and to answer us you know, with humility and honestly, honesty. Uh, philosophy, moving on, um, is another P. That is essentially looking at the market inefficiency that a manager <clears throat> is trying to exploit. You know, why do they come into the office you know, every day? What, or, or at least these days, some days into the office. You know, what, why be active rather than passive? And I suppose on a basic level, this means finding uh, mispriced assets, um, uh, and ultimately, our aim is to decide if we believe the philosophy is viable or not. You know, an inefficiency must be persistent and exploitable into the long term. The process P is really you know, the, the day to day implementation of the philosophy by those people to generate the performance. So we'll look at research approach, notes written, risk controls, you know, portfolio constructions, meeting patterns. You know, really trying to, to seek a, a repeatable, robust investment process. At last, and by no means least, is uh, performance. So that's the final P. As, as every good footnote says, uh, you know, past performance is not a guide to the future, but, you know, and we don't disagree with that, but we do see that styles and risk characteristics do tend to persist and 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 a constant through time. So we'll we'll analyse those, we'll look at those historically, and indeed we'll we'll, we'll often discuss particular holdings, position, particular positions and views um, with the managers. So I think, in summary, I think we do have a robust framework, a repeatable framework to support that successful team. Thanks, Ian. And obviously a lot more going on there than uh, most everyday investors would be able to do uh, themselves. And, and I think that leads on to sort of an increasing area of focus. So environmental, social and governance factors, so ESG, uh, which is you know an increasing area of focus for both the industry, us here at Barclays and also um, customers who, who you know, routinely ask us more and more questions here. So how do you embed that into the analysis um, of managers yourselves? Yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right, Phil. ESG, environmental, social, and governance integration is a, is a key element um, of the investment process. You know, as I hope I've just outlined, within the team we select and invest in managers based on our confidence in their ability to deliver investment objectives, but alongside their associated uh, practices um, when it comes to responsible investing. <clears throat> so, you know, we will inform our external managers of our focus and commitment to responsible investing principles. And actually, we're A-rated by the United Nations um, in this regard. As part of our due diligence and ongoing monitoring, we review their integration of the principles of responsible um, investing. Um, we use an external research provider, um, MSCI, to provide ESG research on the companies that are held 
by those managers so we can question and challenge the managers on those those holdings we also employ a leading engagement firm hermes eos to vote and engage again with those underlying companies in our clients portfolios i mean i could do a whole podcast on this alone so i i, I won't do that today but i think i'll just round off on it on this piece by saying how we incorporate esg into our manager assessments as we as we meet the managers and apply the five the five p's so firstly every manager offering is given a single standalone score from a to c for those esg considerations and that reflects both their intent and their outcome you know, we do expect all active managers equities bonds alternatives to be engaging with the managements of their holdings on these topics and comprehending how those activities could impact on the profitability of the business now this a to c grade sits alongside our 5p rating that we've just spoken about but we do expect to see that the e the s and the g is borne in mind within each of those 5p areas so you know, why don't I just give a few examples to bring that to bring that to life? Um, with regards to parents, you know, we expect to see some sort of climate reporting, perhaps a stance on diversity inclusion within within the staff, um, balanced recruitment and training policies amongst colleagues. Um, with regards to the people area, um, often we see a dedicated ESG team. We seek to see alignment of pay structures. Um, bringing in ESG elements and, and you know, a knowledge of the investment team on such matters day to day. Philosophically, uh, we seek to see an understanding of which ESG factors are material and how they matter for each of the holdings. And then, of course, with regards to the process, uh, we, we you know, expect to see embedment of ESG metrics into the investment process. How is it incorporated into research notes? Indeed, how much ESG risks um, might affect company valuations, stock valuations via the discount rate, for example. And then finally, on, on the performance area, you know, we will use that MSCI database to help us uh, research holdings, question and challenge managers, particularly on on holdings that might score poorly, um, the contentious holdings. Uh, and we also review um, a strategy note, a fund note from MSCI. So I guess in summary, as the team award their sort of ESG or sustainability score from A to C. Examples of the input studied as, as we sort of build up a mosaic of understanding uh, include the, uh, the voting records of the manager, the MSCI ESG research report on the strategy, the manager's documentation regarding any codes or affiliations they might adhere to, uh, and examples of that might be, might be um, the UK stewardship code or, or climate action 100 to just name a couple but i think i think i'll leave it there for now Phil. fantastic thanks ian you know clearly a lot um going on within the team you know both in terms of the five p's but also uh, that esg element as well and clearly adding a lot of value uh to, to clients investing with us uh with that i'll look to wrap up this podcast um there thank you rob luke and ian for your insights today thank you also our listeners for joining us we'll be back with another edition for you next week All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.